0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, Let's open up uh, those ancient words, the words of life, the words of God, the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 5. We're studying verse by verse. Through the Gospel of Luke, we come now to verse 17. title of today's message bringing our friends to Jesus. This is a very familiar story of the men who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus, led him down through the rooftop to the very feet of Jesus. And so let's come now to read Luke 5, beginning verse 17. One day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with a stretcher in the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God and they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. And the Lord had his blessing to the reading of his word. It's at this point in his earthly ministry that the Lord's Jesus fame had become widespread, not only in Galilee, but down in Judea and the holy city of Jerusalem, So representatives from all the villages were there. The house was crowded, packed, to overflowing. And so Jesus was likely in the house that he used as his base of operations. Many commentators believe this was the house of Simon Peter. Regardless of where it was, Jesus was pressed about on all sides by people. In fact, there were so many people there that when four men, the other gospel tells us, Uh, bring their paralyzed friend for healing, they could not get near him. That did not dissuade them. They were good friends. I think all of us would agree that to have good friends is one of the great blessings of this life. Further, most of us, if not all of us, desire to be good friends to others, to help them in their time of need, to support them in times of weakness. I mentioned this week uh, I was at Southern Baptist Convention in Phoenix, Arizona with several thousand of my Southern Baptist friends but I spent a good portion of my week in close proximity to our convention parliamentarians, Dr. Barry McCarty and Dr. Adam Greenway. One of the things I notice about our parliamentarians is that they have to make judgments about amendments to motions. An amendment can be deemed either friendly or unfriendly. A friendly amendment is an amendment to a motion under debate that is perceived by all parties to be enhancing to the original motion, that is, it makes it clearer without changing its meaning. Well, our prayer as a church is that in our relationships with other people in this community, whether they are lost or saved, that we as individual Christians and we as a church body are being good friends. That is, we are enhancing our community by the fact that we live here and we're clarifying who Jesus is through our verbal witness. And it is my conviction that the most friendly thing that we can do For our friends here in Keller and the surrounding communities. And the most enhancing thing we can do for those of us in our community is to bring them to Jesus. And that is exactly what these men here in Luke 5 did. And I believe that their actions are a model for Christian evangelism today. There are four truths as it relates to bringing our friends to Jesus that you'll see on your outline. Number one is that first of all, we must care about their condition. This man's condition was that he was a paralytic, that is he was paralyzed. We don't know the degree of his paralysis but he was paralyzed, unable to walk at least. I can remember as a small boy going to visit my mother's first cousins, Charlie and David Thatch. These men were brothers but they were paralyzed in separate automobile accidents in separate states while both of them were in their 20s. And their mother cared for them at home the rest of their lives. Now we don't know much about the man in Luke five other than that like my cousins, Dave and Charlie, they had people in their lives who loved them. We know that in those days there was a cultural bias against those with physical handicaps. In fact, the pervading idea was that if someone had a physical affliction, it was their fault that God was punishing them for some great sin in their life. And Jesus had to rebuke his own disciples for that attitude at one point in the gospels. We certainly know there were no social programs, no idea that anyone who had a physical affliction that was long-term like this could hold a job. Many of them were financially strained and had to become beggars. But this particular man had those who loved him enough to bring him to Jesus. They cared about his condition. Now obviously all of us should evangelize this community because Jesus commands us to. That's enough, right? If we had no other motive... Then Jesus said, do it, we ought to evangelize. But that does not mean that there are no other motives. And it certainly does not mean that those of us who evangelize out of obedience to Christ care nothing about the condition of the lost. Because God certainly does. In fact, He's very emotional about it. In Ezekiel 33, 11, God says this, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live Turn back, turn back from your evil ways or why will you die, O house of Israel? God is not insensitive or unmoved about the condition of the lost. He appeals to them time and time again to turn around and come back to him. James five eleven, describing the very character of God says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's not something that he stirs up within himself occasionally. That is his attribute. He is full to overflowing of compassion and mercy. And we know that Jesus was certainly compassionate over the condition of the lost in his own city. Look at Luke 19, turn over quickly and we're gonna spend a great deal of time in this chapter when we get there in a few years. <laughs> Luke 19:41. Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem. And this is what the scripture says, Luke 19, 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus didn't take any joy in the future of those who reject him. He was speaking prophetically of course of what would come shortly after his ascension into heaven which was the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. When he thought about the future that awaited those who rejected him, he wept. I had to ask myself the question this morning, when's the last time you wept over the lostness of those around you? But if we're bringing our friends to Jesus, we must care about their condition. And secondly, we must know where to find him, that is Jesus. These men knew where Jesus was, and they were determined to get their friends to him. Do you know where Jesus is to be found? Well of course he's to be found in the life of every believer through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So I think it's a very good idea if you have lost friends to get them around Christians. Secondly, he's to be found in your verbal witness. You don't have to wait to to take them to some other person to share their faith, you must be equipped to share your faith when the opportunity arrives. And not just through your lifestyle, that is a given, of course. By the way we live and the way we talk and the way we order our lives, we ought to give witness that we're children of Jesus. But there comes a point where we must tell them the facts about the gospel. And those facts are to be found in the pages of the Bible. When we bring our friends to Jesus, we must bring them to the Jesus of the Bible and not the Jesus of popular culture. And here's what I mean by that. In Phoenix this week, uh, I heard a young man say that I like Jesus He's a hippie like I am and probably like to smoke marijuana. That's the image a lot of people have of Jesus. He's just kind of a free spirit, probably a misunderstood martyr, good dude. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. When I say we must bring people to Jesus, I mean we must bring them to the Jesus that left the glory of heaven to become a baby in his mother's womb. The Jesus that lived a perfect sinless life while he walked this world. The Jesus that died a substitutionary atoning death for sinners. The Jesus that suffered and died on a bloody cross. The Jesus that literally rose from the dead on the third day. The Jesus that ascended into heaven and sat down to the, next to the majesty on high. The Jesus that is coming again for his church. This is the Jesus of the Bible. And if we're going to uh, have compassion on our friends, we must clarify who Jesus is. First of all, we must know Him, must know where to find Him, and then bring our friends to Him. Thirdly, if we're going to bring our friends to Jesus, we must do all we can. Are you impressed that these men didn't give up? I know sometimes in our evangelistic efforts, uh, we ring the doorbell, and if they're not there in two seconds, we're back in the car, right? Well, they weren't home. These men didn't come to this house and see every entrance barred by humanity and say, well, we did our best. Sorry, buddy. Try again later. That's not what they did. They saw the obstacle and they overcame it. Verse 18 says, some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of Jesus, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof. And let him down through the tiles with his stretcher in the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Now in that part of the world the houses tended to have flat roofs. And what they would do is they would have wooden beams that spanned across the width of the largest room. And between those beams there would be placed tiles strong enough to support human beings. They would often have staircases leading up to those rooftops where they would go in the cool of the evening or when it got too hot in the house. You remember the story of, G- of Peter rather, in the book of Acts who went up on the rooftop there in Joppa and he fell asleep and had a vision from the Lord. And so that was a very common way to build houses. And so uh, can you imagine being there and Jesus is teaching, he's healing and all of a sudden this debris starts falling from above you. And suddenly a a sunbeam burst in and the next thing you know this paralyzed man is being let down from the four corners of his stretcher right to the feet of Jesus. These men did all that they could for their friend. That is they removed every obstacle to get him to Jesus. Now there are some very common obstacles that we hear about. Reasons that people give for not sharing their faith. Number one is fear. Maybe I'll be rejected. I imagine these men had some fear. If they destroyed their neighbor's roof, he might get angry with him. But they did it anyway. They overcame that fear. The Bible says that the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear. In fact, when we're walking close to the Lord, he gives us courage. David said in the 23rd Psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not? For thou art with me. And when you know that the Lord is with you, you can overcome fear. Secondly, We have to overcome laziness. It simply is hard work to take the gospel to the nations. It was hard work to take this man and all of his weight up on top of that roof. It was hard work to remove those tiles. It was hard work to lower him down. And it is hard work to remove obstacles to bring people to Jesus today. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Just means that we need to pray for strength. The third obstacle we hear about is a lack of training. Well, I would share my faith, but I I don't know how. Well, I imagine there's a time in your life when you didn't know how to do a lot of things. Didn't know how to tie your shoes. Didn't know how to brush your teeth. Didn't know how to drive a car. But guess what? You can do all those things today. Why? Because you took the time to learn. And that's the same way you learn how to share your faith. You take the time to learn. You spend time with people who know how to do it. You walk where they go. You watch what they do. You ask them questions and then you are trained. If you're not trained, get trained. Our church provides that training. If you need personal training, you come see me and uh, we will train you. And then a fourth obstacle, and this is one that's devastating, is our lifestyle. One of the reasons I believe that we don't share our faith with our friends is because they know us too well. Because sometimes our speech and our attitudes and our actions are not not demonstrably different from theirs. They don't claim to be a Christian. One of the reasons our mouths are almost wired shut seemingly is because we know the second we open our mouth about Jesus, they're going to claim hypocrite, right? I know what you said last week. I know what you did last month. Well, if that's the case with you, here's how to overcome that. First of all, if that's true... Ask the Lord to forgive you of that. Say, Lord, forgive me that my lifestyle, my speech has not been much different than my lost friends. And then go to that lost friend and ask them to forgive you. And say, Brother, I've been your friend a long time, and I have not spoken or acted like a Christian around you. Will you forgive me of that? And then you tell them about Jesus. They gave this man access to Jesus. This week in Phoenix at the Convention Center uh, I ran into several of our old interns here. You may know that we have a pretty active internship program here because of our proximity to the seminary. We bring in young men, help train them up and send them out across the country to be pastors. And one of the places they come together if they don't see each other very often is at the Southern Baptist Convention. And as I was coming down the escalator Tuesday morning there was a group of our old interns huddled at the bottom having a good time visiting. They didn't see me coming. And as I got to the bottom of the escalator, I went right through the middle of them, and I said, one of you guys is the best intern I ever had, and I kept going. (laughs) I still have a ways to go in sanctification. (laughs) But I turned around, and we had a good time visiting. One One of the young men that was there was Colin Day. Somebody remember Colin grew up in our... Youth group. He's 24 years old now and married, and he's now the associate pastor at First Southern Baptist Church in St. George, Utah. And St. George, Utah is sort of a hub city of southern Utah, where the population is over 90 percent Mormon, and where we planted a church. you might remember, just a few years ago, the church is doing very well. But when I was on sabbatical leave several years ago, I spent my six weeks there in southern Utah. And while there, I identified and visited 18 municipalities in southern Utah, where, as far as we know, there is no evangelical church. And we began to pray that the Lord would raise up men and women who would go and plant churches in these 18 municipalities. And the first one on the list was a little place called Damron Valley. And Colin has started a Bible study in Dameron Valley. He was telling me about the many families who are now coming. But one of the obstacles that he has to overcome there is that all of these families come out of generations of Mormonism. And so he first has to tell them what's the difference between biblical Christianity and what they've been taught. And then the Holy Spirit has to do a work of God. And so we sometimes encounter great obstacles to bringing our people to Jesus, it just means that we need to be more prayerful that the Lord would help us to do that. Now, fourthly, once that we have removed as, as many obstacles as we can, once we have done all we can, as this man did for their friend, then we must know our limitations. We must do all we can for our friends to have access to Jesus, but we cannot save them. We cannot change their hearts. We cannot forgive their sins, all of that is up to Jesus. Paul, when he was explaining his ministry to the Corinthian church, said, I planted, I watered, but God gives the increase, right? It's up to him. That does not diminish the fact that we have to plant and water, but it's up to God to save. Verse 20 says, seeing their faith, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. See, this man had a much greater problem than paralysis. He was lost and needed a savior. And his four friends could no more forgive his sin than they could heal his body. But they had brought him to one who could do both of those things. Remember, Luke is all about the authority of Jesus. And in Luke chapter five, we've already seen that Jesus has authority over every part of his creation, both spiritual and physical he proves it once again here in the presence of many witnesses beginning in verse 21. Look at it. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemy? Now these scribes and Pharisees followed Jesus wherever he went. They tried to catch him in some mistake, tried to put him in a trap theologically and he never fell for it, of course. And then they asked this very pointed question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now the Pharisees and the scribes were orthodox. They had good doctrine. That's a very good point. Who can forgive sins but God? What's the answer? Nobody. The problem is they didn't understand that God was in their midst. Jesus is God. That's why he had the authority to forgive sins. These Pharisees though were intellectual and they had orthodox theology, but that was not enough. They were academically geniuses But I heard a pastor say this week that he would rather be ignorant and on fire for God than an intellect on ice. And these men were intellectuals on ice. They had a lot of facts, but they didn't know the Lord. Our community, our friends, need people who are on fire for Jesus. Verse 23, which is easier, Jesus says, to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk, Now, taken very literally, they're both equal to say, right? Your sins be forgiven you. Get up and walk. Neither one of those is very taxing to say. His point is, which of those is easier to do? Or is more obvious? So if I say to someone, your sins are forgiven, you can't know if they are or not, right? You're just observing something. But if I heal a person who's been paralyzed all of their lives and he gets up and walks away healthy, then you know there's power on display, right? So Jesus says, so that you may know, so that you may know that I have the power and the authority to forgive sins, I'm gonna heal this man too. And so he says to the man, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he got up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. By the way, that is the aim of everything we do for Christ, including evangelizing our friends. It's to bring glory to God. His glory is our reward. And so this man glorified God. Verse 26, they were all, I take it, everyone in the house struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. That is when people observe what God's doing through us, they'll glorify God as well. And they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. And I don't know about you, but I long to see God do remarkable things in this church. He has done great things. All of us here today are trophies of His grace. We, we need to celebrate every time someone is saved. What we do when we get together at conventions as pastors, how many did you baptized last year? And if it wasn't as many as the next year, we, we, we think we're all failures. Listen, I heard a guy say this week, the threshold for celebrating in heaven is one who comes to faith. Just one. If one comes to faith, there's joy in heaven. So we ought to celebrate anytime one comes to faith. But, but I join you in wanting to see remarkable things in our I want to see my lost friend saved. I want to see this community transformed by the saving power of Jesus Christ. I want to see revival and spiritual awakening in our nation. But if that's to happen, if we're to follow the pattern we find here in Luke chapter 5, we have to, to pray like this. Lord, would you give First Baptist Church of Keller, would you give me as an individual believer a burden of, for souls. Help us, Lord, to care more for the condition of our friends, our community, and our nation. I find in myself when I read the latest tragedy or the latest act of violence that's been perpetuated in this country, I have the temptation as a believer and as a father, before, four, to withdraw, to lock my doors, to turn inward, That's not our mission. Christ does not leave us here to turn inward. He said we're to go and to make disciples of all the nations. And if we're to do that, we have to pray, Lord, equip every member of First Baptist Keller with your word so that they may give a verbal witness of the gospel. That's a very simple goal and a prayer that I've had for a long time here at First Baptist. We have about 2,500 members in our church. And I'm praying that. Every single member of our church, all 2,500, if given the opportunity, could give a clear, concise, verbal witness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. On an airplane, or in a cafe, or on a sports field, or in a cubicle in an office, or across the fence. When the opportunity arises and the Holy Spirit, in His still small voice, prompts you to share the, the, your faith with him. Could you tell them about Jesus in a clear and a concise way? And then we need to pray, Lord, help us to live consistent lifestyles with our speech and with our attitudes and with our actions, the way we spend our money, the way we order our days, so that my mouth wouldn't be locked shut. And we should pray, Lord, give us strength and perseverance to do all that we can to give as many as we can access to Jesus. And then when we've done all that we can, then we leave it up to him, right? We leave the saving to him. By the way, he's real good at it. Would you join me as a congregation in praying for our friends, praying for our community? Right now, would you just bow your head and and close your eyes? I'm gonna lead us in prayer, but. Our president of our convention this week preached a marvelous sermon Tuesday morning in which he declared from the word that before we minister to our community, we are first called to minister to the Lord through prayer and fasting. And so I'm calling you not only to pray regularly for this community and for our friends, I'm asking you to join me in taking one day a week. And whatever day you do, that's between you and the Lord. But if you'll commit today to fasting for a 24 hour period, one day a week for the next 40 weeks. And asking the Lord to save your friends and this community. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord I'm asking you on behalf of these people and, and most importantly for myself that you would give me a burden for the lostness and the condition of souls here in Keller and the surrounding communities. Lord we know we're to obey you and fulfill the Great Commission, but we want to be not only obedient, we want to be like Jesus. We want to be compassionate for the law. Help us, Lord, when we are tempted to turn inward and isolate ourselves from the world to remember our calling, to remember that once we were lost and someone reached out to us, Lord, I pray that you would help every member of First Baptist Keller to be equipped so that at a moment's notice, they could give a clear, concise, verbal witness of the gospel. And Lord, I pray for strength and perseverance when we encounter obstacles, whether they be religious or physical or financial, that we would do all that we can to remove those obstacles. And then Lord, doing all that we can, then we just leave it up to you to do the saving. Lord, we ask you to do it. We ask you to save the lost in our community, not for our own sake, not so that we can pat ourselves on the back, but because you are glorified when the lost are saved. Father, we long to see that in our day. We pray for revival. We ask that you'd send it through Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast.